I hope that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jacob, for that wonderful message and song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. What a powerful message. You know, Amazing Grace is one of those songs you never have to do anything with it. You know what I mean? So all you have to do is just get up and sing it. Isn't that true? Because the message is so powerful and it's so impactful in our lives. And so I hope at this point you have seen the Lord high and lifted up. That is what the desire of our heart is, is that we will behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that we will see Him seated on the throne of majesty above. That is what my desire is. And so as I looked around this morning, I saw some of you just worshiping, saw some with your hands raised up, Praising God, I always want us to have the freedom to allow God to lead us before His throne in worship. In an orderly way, but in a way that we can just say, God, I praise You for who You truly are in our lives. All right, so we've been walking through the Gospel of John. I hope that you are loving this study that we are going through together. It has been such a powerful study in my own life. I've always wanted to preach through the Gospel of John. I love it. As a matter of fact, I often tell people the two books that you need to read, at least initially in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, is first the Gospel of John, because there's no book in the Bible that helps us to better understand who Jesus Christ is than the Gospel of John. If you want to see who Jesus is, if you want to behold Him in all of His glory, in His fullness, read the Gospel of John. Because it's really, that's what John is centering upon when he writes this particular book, his gospel account. He wants us to see Jesus for who he really is. You know, of all of the four gospels, only John really reveals to us who Jesus Christ is. The others tend to focus much more on what Jesus did in his ministry here on earth. And that's important. We need to understand who Jesus was and what Jesus did. But John really focuses on who Jesus Christ was. As a matter of fact, in this book, if you read it, you're going to notice some just unique characteristics about the Gospel of John. The number seven appears over and over again. There are seven signs that Jesus Christ performed. There are seven main figures or central figures in this book. There are also the seven I am statements that Jesus Christ makes in the gospel. And don't, don't, don't miss the importance of that. John is trying to convey something very important through that as he writes his book to this particular audience. He wants them to understand that Jesus Christ is, is, is the fullness, the fullness of God rests in Jesus Christ. You know, I don't know if you've ever done a study on numbers in Jewish history, in Jewish religion, but the number seven is perfect or complete is what it means. Well, that is so important as we think about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man in human flesh. He is completely God. That's who he is. And that's what John wants us to understand, that Jesus Christ is God in the human flesh. 
So we've been walking through this great book. And if you remember the last time we were together, we left Jesus Christ at a wedding feast in the town of Canaan. That is a story that we looked at last week. We saw some great things at Jesus Christ. He taught us some very important lessons concerning salvation out of that story, if you remember. One of the lessons is this. Only Jesus Christ has the power to really transform a person's life. We can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We can change some things about our life, but there's not a single person here this morning who can change their heart, can make themselves any more loving than God. God is the one who transforms our life. The other thing that we learned last week out of that story is this. We learned that Jesus Christ always leaves the best for last. Amen? One day, Jesus is going to step out, the trumpet is going to sound, and the dead in Christ is going to rise from the grave. And those of us who are left behind are going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We're going to be caught up into heaven with Him. And at that moment and time, we will behold face to face the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what we're going to see. Can you imagine that for a moment? Just think about that for a moment. We are going to behold Jesus Christ face to face. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But can I say something to you this morning? That's not going to be a glorious day for everybody. It won't be. Because in that moment, there will be people who will realize, I don't know Jesus Christ. And they'll be left behind. For seven years of tribulation. Literally, hell on earth. Literally. Is what's going to take place. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, you've never experienced God's amazing grace in your life, I oh so plead with you today, today to be the day that you would turn your heart and your life over to Jesus Christ. He is the only hope for tomorrow. He is our great hope, the hope of glory in us. Well, let's go back. We're going to pick up in this story that we're going to look at this morning. And you know we're going to have an opportunity to see Jesus Christ involved in a very unusual activity. We're going to get to see Jesus Christ cleaning house. That's what we're going to have the opportunity to see this morning. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that Jesus cleaned house. But I would share with you this morning, He's not cleaning His earthly Father's house. In this story, Jesus Christ is cleaning his heavenly Father's house. He is cleaning the temple is what Jesus Christ is doing. Now, I think at times we all have a skewed image of who Jesus Christ really is. We step back and we think of Jesus Christ as this very polite person who would never offend anyone and he's kind of weak-kneed. But I would tell you that is so contrary to what we see in Scripture. Not only was Jesus Christ just strong in His physicality, He was also strong in His personality. 
And in this story, we're going to see a side of Jesus Christ that I expect that we don't oftentimes think about. Jesus Christ and His disciples have gone up to the temple. They have gone there to observe the Passover. The Passover was one of those religious holidays of Judaism that was required for men of Jerusalem, I mean men of Israel to go to. According to the law, they had to attend three different feasts, religious holidays, in order to be in compliance with what God had told them. Jesus and his disciples go up to the temple. And they go there at the very beginning of Passover. And what Jesus Christ sees taking place here in this story at the temple temple is appalling to him. As he enters into the court of the Gentiles, Jesus Christ sees the money changers and the sellers taking advantage of people. They are cheating people. Jesus Christ, as a result of that, makes a whip out of cord and he begins to clean his father's house. Now, nowhere in this passage of Scripture are we ever told that Jesus Christ whipped any of the people. But I think that you would agree with me this morning when I read this particular story. That in this story, Jesus Christ is good and angry at what he sees taking place. Have you ever imagined that image of Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought about the fact that there were times that Jesus Christ got good and angry at what he saw happening in front of him? Well, it is obvious in this story when we read this text, that is exactly what Jesus Christ sees here. Jesus Christ is visibly angry and upset at what he sees taking place in his father's temple. The temple was a place of worship. The temple was a place of sacrifice and prayer. And when he goes here, he sees that people are taking advantage of other people. And no less, he sees them taking advantage of them in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is where the Gentiles gathered. And it was an opportunity for them to observe the worship of the the Jews as they worshiped the one true living God. This was a place where they could come to understand who God really was. But what's happening here has blinded them to really seeing who Christ is. This is an amazing story. And I think it is in this story, as we examine this story together, that God is going to show us three very important truths. Three simple truths that I don't really think is going to be anything new for us, but what I think is going to happen is going to open our eyes and may reaffirm some things in our life that we should have recognized all along. Three different truths that we see in this particular story. I want you to follow along with me as we begin to read here in verse 13. He says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out, all of them with the sheep and the oxen. 
and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I want us to just stop right here in this story. Can you get this picture in your mind? Can you see the context of what is taking place in this story? Jesus Christ has gone into the temple. The money, I mean the sellers, those who sold the animals for sacrifice and the money changers are gathered there. They're taking advantage of the people. So often what would happen is people would travel from a great distance in order to not have to bring a sacrifice that distance with them, they would go to the temple and what would take place is the sellers would sell them sacrifices to be offered at the temple. The other thing about what is happening here at this scene is when you went to the temple in order to give an offering, you had to give that in Jewish, Jewish currency. So what would happen is there were money changers who would be sitting there. We would call them vendors when I was in Zambia. And they would be exchanging people's money at a great cost. Those people who were selling the animals were selling blemished animals. Animals that were not worthy to be sacrificed to God. And when Jesus Christ sees what is taking place in his father's house, he takes out cords and he makes out of it a whip. And he begins to cleanse the temple. Jesus Christ is good and angry. Have you ever thought about that image of Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought about the image that Jesus Christ was good and angry about what he saw taking place in his father's house? I wonder this morning, if Jesus Christ walked into this building today and he saw our worship, what he would say about it. You know, when Jesus examines, he doesn't examine the externals. Jesus Christ examines the internal. He gets to the heart of the matter. And so when he looks at our worship, he looks into our hearts and in our lives to see if we are truly worshiping in spirit and in truth or are we simply going through the motions when we come together as God's people. Lord, help us if we ever come to God, I mean, come together as God's people for simply for the purpose of going through the motions of worship. Worship should never, ever, ever be routine. It should never be routine. 
when Jesus entered into the temple that day, I would tell you, we saw a side of Jesus Christ that we oftentimes don't consider. Jesus Christ was good and angry over what he saw taking place in the temple, his father's house. Now, some of you may be saying this morning, well, Brother Jeff, I thought it was wrong for us to be angry. Isn't it sinful when we are angry? I would tell you that you are right. There is a sin of anger that is spoken of in the Bible that is very wrong. When we use words to tear down and destroy people's life, when we demean people, when we act out in rage of anger, Scripture teaches us that is sinful. But I would also remind you at the same time, there is a sin that is spoken of in God's Word that is not sinful, and that's the kind of sin that Jesus Christ had in this passage of Scripture. Sometimes we refer to it as righteous indignation. It is a righteous anger over the actions of someone. And that is the anger that Jesus Christ experienced here in this story. He was angry over what he saw taking place in his father's house. Rather than it being a place of worship, prayer, and sacrifice as God had called it to be, what we see taking place here, they had turned it into a den of thieves and robbers. And as a result of that, Jesus was very angry about that situation. That's the kind of anger that Jesus Christ expressed in this story. Now listen to me. As Christians, I will tell you this morning, there are some things we should be angry about in this world. When we see injustices taking place, that should cause us to be angry. When we look at a culture that has killed over 60 million babies, that ought to cause within us an emotion to rise up that produces anger in us as we see that. We should be angry over the fact that our religious freedom is being threatened by those who label evangelical Christians as hate mongers. We should be good and angry over things that anger our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We should be. We should be. Now here is the simple truth that I want you to take away. The simple truth, as Christians, there are some things in this world that are worth being angry over. There are. What upsets our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I will tell you today, should stir us as well. As we look at the climate of America today, we should be upset about what we see in the nation that we live in today. We should be. Now, here is the great struggle. If you're like me and you've grown up in a Southern Baptist church, we've all heard this before, haven't we? Well, we need to be able to separate the sin from the person. You heard that before? We've all heard that, and that is the great challenge for us We are to be angry about sin. There should be a righteous indignation in us when we see the injustices of this world. I will tell you something this morning. God is concerned about injustice. He is concerned about that. And that should move us as God's people. But the problem is, is we need to make very care or we need to make very sure that we differentiate between that which is wrong, that which is sin, and the person. We should never ever be 
angry at people. But we should be angry at the injustices of the world. When Jesus Christ went to his father's house here, the temple, I can tell you, he was good and angry. I mean, just read the story. I mean, think about it for a moment. He takes cords and he makes a whip. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not always the brightest guy. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But I will tell you this right here. When you begin to read this story, it is easy to understand that Jesus Christ was upset about the situation he saw taking place in his father's temple. Would you agree with me on that this morning? Yeah. And I would say to you today, that should be true of our lives as well. So the first truth I really want us to take away from this passage of Scripture is this. As followers of Jesus Christ, there are some things that are worth being angry over in the world in which we live. Number two. Let's go back to this story because I think we are going to see a second truth in this story. Let's go back and let's finish reading the rest of this story. So the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, what the Jews were saying to Jesus Christ was this, Jesus, why have you done what you've done? Show us some kind of th- a sign that gives you the authority to do what you have done here at the temple of God. So this is what Jesus Christ is going to say to them. Jesus answers them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? Everything that Jesus Christ said here went right over their heads, didn't it? They failed to understand the truth that Jesus Christ was teaching them. Now, this is the simple truth that John wanted his readers to understand when Jesus Christ makes this statement. When they ask, what sign do you show, or you show us for doing these things? Where does your authority come from? This is what John wanted his readers to understand. Jesus Christ is the Lord of all things. Jesus Christ is even Lord of the temple. That's what he's saying to them. That is what he wants them to realize. Where does your authority come from, Jesus? What gives you the right to do what you've done here at the temple? And Jesus looks at them, and he goes on, and he tells them, well, you, you destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it back to life. You know what Jesus Christ is saying? He goes, I want you to understand something. I am Lord of everything. I am Lord of all. You think you can kill me? You think you can destroy my body? But I will tell you what, I am Lord over life. In the same way that I'm Lord over this temple, I am Lord over life. I'm Lord over death and life, is what Jesus Christ is saying in this passage of Scripture. Jesus Christ is Lord over everything. And what Jesus Christ wanted them, or what John wanted his readers to understand in this passage, that Jesus Christ was Lord over the temple. And because He was Lord over the temple, He had the authority to do what He did. He had the authority to do it. Now I want you to see this parallel in Scripture. There's a great parallel in this story. And I don't want you to miss it this morning. In the same way that Jesus was Lord over the temple, 
when it was in existence, now get this, Jesus Christ is Lord over his church today. He's Lord over the church. Perhaps nowhere is this clearer than in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew shares a story with us in the 16th chapter. Many of you are probably familiar with that story. In that story, Jesus Christ and his disciples are passing through Caesarea Philippi. And as they pass through Caesarea Philippi, Jesus Christ looks at his disciples and he says to them, Who do men say that I am? His disciples respond by saying, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say that you are Jeremiah or you are Elijah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus Christ looks at his apostles and this is the question he asks them. But who do you say that I am? Do you realize that's the most important question any of us will ever answer in life? Every one of us are faced with that question on a daily basis. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Of course, it is Peter who answers the question. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus looks at Peter, and this is what he says to Peter. Peter, you are blessed. Man has not revealed this to you, God in heaven, your Father, has revealed this to you. And on this rock, I will build my church. The rock that Jesus, or the rock that Jesus Christ is referring to in that story is not Peter. If he was going to build the church on Peter, he would have just said, and on you, Peter, I will build the church. He doesn't say that. He says, on this rock, I will build the church. He is referring to the confession of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God. The church is built on Jesus Christ. The foundation is Jesus Christ. When we look at that story, it is so easy for us to tell and to understand that Jesus Christ is the owner of the church. And because Jesus Christ is the owner of the church, He has all authority over the church. And because Jesus has all authority over the church, only Jesus has the right to determine what the purpose of the church is. Only He has that right. Now let me ask you a question this morning. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church. Those are five of the greatest words ever spoken in Scripture. Jesus says, I will build my church. Now let me share with you what Jesus Christ didn't say. Jesus didn't say, I will build the pastor's church. He didn't say, I will build the staff's church. He didn't say, I'll build the deacon's church. And you know what? He didn't say that he would build your church either. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will tell you, when we understand this simple truth, it will change what we think about and how we view the church. Now, I hope you understand here this morning, when Jesus Christ uses the word church, he's not referring to a building. We know that, right? He's referring to God's people. But when we see the church 
in this way, we will have a sense of awe and respect for God's church. I mean, after all, it is the body and the bride of Christ. It will affect how we see and how we view God's church when we begin to realize that the church is built on Jesus Christ, that the church belongs to Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church. He is the owner of God's church. And because He is the owner of God's church, He is the one who has the right to determine the purpose of His church. Now let's just stop right there because I think it's so very important for us to review the purpose of God's church right here. First, the church is to glorify God. The church exists to bring honor and glory to God's name. That is the purpose of the church. That's the reason why Brother Andy and I place such great emphasis on Sunday morning worship, being honoring and glorifying. Our desire is to direct you into the presence of God that we might glorify Him as His body. That's what church is all about. The church exists to bring honor and glory to His name. Second, The second purpose of the church is for us to grow in our love for Him and one another. The two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and body, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples by your good, sound doctrine. No, that's not what He said, is it? No. I was seeing if you were still awake. He said, you will, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Do you see that? The third purpose of the church is to proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. To be a lighthouse in the midst of great darkness. At the center of everything that we do is the gospel message. It's like I said this morning, if we get together and we drink Kool-Aid and eat hot dogs, it ought to be about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Everything we do, we should be proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. We do realize, don't we? We understand that people apart from Jesus Christ are going to die and spend an eternity separated from Him in a place called hell. Do we know that? I know we understand that. That ought to motivate us. It ought to drive us to get out of the doors of the church house and share the good news of Jesus Christ with the lost and dying world. We do realize they are living under the wrath of God. They are utterly hopeless and helpless apart from Jesus Christ. Do we really believe that though? Do we believe that? You do know that Jesus Christ spoke three times as much about hell as he ever did about heaven. Do you know why he did that? Because he didn't want anybody to spend eternity there. He was pleading with people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Our hearts 
should be broken over the lostness of the world that we live in. I mean, Scripture is very, very clear. There are not many roads that lead to heaven. There is only one road that leads to heaven, and that goes through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But I want you to notice something. He does not stop there because he adds on to that these words in case we missed it at the beginning. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I will say something to you. There are a number of different studies in the world in which we live in today that say that many evangelical Christians have a pluralistic understanding of salvation, that there are many different ways by which people can be saved. And I will tell you, that is a lie of the enemy. That is a lie of the enemy. There is only one name given under heaven by which men can be saved, and that name is Jesus Christ. You see, the clear truth of this passage of Scripture is this, is that Jesus Christ is the owner of the church, and because Jesus Christ is the owner of the church, He has authority over the church, and because He has authority over the church, it is only His right to determine the purpose of the church. It is not our right to determine the purpose of the church. It is our responsibility to see that the purpose of the church is fulfilled. That is our responsibility. That is our responsibility. We're obviously not going to get to the end of this sermon this morning. We didn't make it to the end of it in the first service, but I had high hopes in the second service. I told everybody in the first service that they would come to the second service. I'd start with the third point so that they could all hear it. But you know what? There is one last point that is taught in this passage that is very important. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus Christ. He says this, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now we know that Jesus Christ wasn't referring to the physical temple. If you were to travel to Israel today, There is no temple in Israel. It was destroyed in A.D. 70 by the Romans. There's a foundation left there and there's a wall. It's called the Wailing Wall. But that temple no longer exists today. So when Jesus Christ said, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days, he wasn't referring to a physical structure. He was referring to his body. Now get this, this is a great parallel in Scripture. You need to hear it. Jesus Christ here refers to his body as the temple. In 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, Paul refers to our body as the living temple of the holy God. Now stay with me for a moment. This is really interesting. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God resided in the holy of holies in the center of the temple that inner sanctuary. 
Ezekiel gives us a beautiful picture, or really it's a descriptive picture, not so beautiful, of the Spirit of God leaving the temple in his book, Ezekiel. That's what we see happening there. Jesus Christ comes to the New Testament, and he says that my body is the temple of the living God. Paul writes and says, all of the fullness of the Godhead was in Jesus Christ. He says that in the book of Colossians. Now follow me and stay with me here because this is great news. When we trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, there is something magnificent that happened in your life and happened in my life. This is what took place. We were baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came and took up residence in our life. All of God resides in you and me. All of the power that rose Jesus Christ from the grave lives in you and I today if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Do you realize that? Do you see it? The Spirit of the living God is in you and me if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that so good? Your body and my body is a temple of the living God. And this is the question we must ask ourselves today. Is there any area of our life that Jesus Christ needs to do a little house cleaning in? Is yes, there? What area of our life does Jesus want to come into and clean house in? Maybe it's our attitude. Maybe it's our relationship. You see... What Jesus desires more than anything else in your heart, in my life, is this. He wants to sit on the throne of our life. He wants to be Lord of our... In the same way that Jesus was Lord of that physical structure there, the temple, Jesus Christ is Lord of our life. Now listen to me carefully as I close. All right? Jesus Christ is either... Lord of all or he is Lord of nothing in your life nothing 99 and 9 tenths percent of your life is not good enough for Jesus Christ he either has all of you or he has none of you and as we look at our lives this morning we must ask ourselves the question is Jesus Christ the Lord of my relationships? Is He Lord of my marriage? Is He Lord of my family? Is He Lord of my children? I mean, parents, we do realize the children don't belong to us, right? I hope we understand that. They belong to God. We're just stewards of what He has given us. Is He Lord of your finances this morning? Lord of your job today? Is Jesus Christ truly Lord of your life? 
Father God, we thank you for your word and the way it speaks to our hearts today. Father, I pray that you would have your way in our hearts and our lives during this invitation. Lord, I hope that each one of us will ask ourselves honestly the question, are you truly Lord of my life? I think that's a question we always need to be asking ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would guide us and direct us during this time of invitation, that you would be honored and glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.